took a note of my phone. I think we're going to sing that song at our church too. That's a good one. Thank you guys for blessing us in that way. And thank you all for uh, having me here uh, in Arab. It is an absolute delight to be here with you and worship our Lord together. As Clark mentioned, uh, my name is Josh. We're from Pittsburgh. And uh, we have started Redeeming Grace Church there. I guess it's been about seven years ago that we moved up there, five years ago that we started the church and started as a Bible study, saw it grow into a church, and uh, the Lord has been very good in some very encouraging ways to us. And uh, one of the passages that's guided our efforts in Pittsburgh as we seek to equip our people to fulfill the, God, the calling that God has placed on their, on their lives. We, we use the, the term missionaries quite a bit, talking about how each Christian is called to be a missionary in the places and among the people where they are. Uh, so one passage that we, we look at a lot with regard to equipping our people as missionaries is the one I'd like to look at with you this morning. And that is Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. So after we read about Jesus ascending into heaven before the very eyes of his disciples in the previous verses, we then read this in Acts 1, 12 through 26. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and was allotted a share in his ministry, this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Al-Kaldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men, who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's pray together. Lord, what a joy it is to gather with your people to worship your name, Lord, and to hear from your word. Lord. We pray 
that the same spirit that originally inspired this text to be written so many years ago would now illuminate this text. Lord, open our eyes, open our hearts, accomplish within us everything you desire to accomplish. Lord, I pray that we would not only grow in knowledge, but that we would be shaped by this text, God, to be more like Jesus, to resemble him more, to love him more, to know more, not just about him, but to know more of him. Lord, bless this time to that end. Lord, bless, overshadow my feeble efforts and all of my weaknesses, God. And glorify your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately is how quickly time seems to be passing by. And that might seem like a bit of a random thought, but I think uh, maybe one of the reasons I've been thinking about it so much is that my birthday is coming up in the not too distant future and specifically my 33rd birthday and it seems like these past few years these birthdays have been occurring more and more frequently right as if the time between my birthdays has grown shorter and shorter and it seems like just a few months ago that I was turning 32 and now <laughs> I'm turning 33 already I mean it just doesn't seem to be right something just doesn't seem right about that and so uh, nevertheless that is the case it reminds me of a meme that I saw on Facebook the other day that seems to be making its rounds perhaps you've seen it as well it outlines four stages of life so first in the first stage you believe in Santa then you don't believe in Santa then you are Santa and then finally you look like Santa so I'm not quite at that last stage yet, but I seem to be getting there surprisingly quickly, at least much more quickly than I thought I would. And like many of you, I want my time on this earth to count for something. I want to be a good steward of the years that God's given me because it's becoming increasingly apparent that my number of years is limited in this world. And so I want to make the best use of them for the glory of God. Uh, I want to make an impact. And that's why I find this passage of Scripture so encouraging. Because it reminds me that we can make an impact. All of us can. In fact, we can make an eternal impact even if we never become famous or have news articles published about us, or have the kind of ministry that would be included in the church history books of future generations. Now, to set the context for this passage, as I mentioned, Jesus has just ascended into heaven and given his disciples a rather audacious mission, the mission of reaching the world with the gospel. But he also told them that before they even attempt to carry out this mission, they first need to wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. Then Jesus ascended into heaven before the very eyes of his disciples as they looked on. And then the story picks up in verses 12 through 14. Let me read that again. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, 
which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Now already, just in these few verses, we can see the contours of the main idea taking shape. And that is that God changes the world through ordinary people who are prayerfully dependent on him. God changes the world through ordinary people who are prayerfully dependent on him. See, as we look through this list of names mentioned in these verses, one striking feature of all of these folks is how ordinary they were. I mean, let's look here. Four of them were fishermen, obviously not a particularly prestigious occupation. One was basically a con artist. Another was a political revolutionary. The one woman listed here, Mary, was the wife of a carpenter. And as for the others, well, they were all so ordinary that this is pretty much all we know about them. We don't really know much else. Yet it was these people whom God would use to change the world. There's a really good chance that your spiritual ancestry and my spiritual ancestry could be traced back to one of these people. God used these ordinary people in truly remarkable and extraordinary ways. And I don't know about you, but I find that to be such an encouragement because it reminds me that God can use any of us as well. In fact, that's his pattern. The Apostle Paul says it well in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So here we find it explicitly stated that you don't have to be among the elite of society for God to use you, right? In fact, God prefers to use the lowly so that it's obvious to everyone that he's the one who's actually doing the work. That's his normal pattern, as we see both here in 1 Corinthians 1 and back in our main text of Acts 1. So don't think, brothers and sisters, that God can't or won't use you. If these verses show us anything, they show us there's no limit to what God can do through you, regardless of how ordinary you are. It doesn't matter if you have an impressive spiritual pedigree or not. It doesn't matter if you've been to seminary or not, or even if you have a college degree or not. It doesn't matter whether you have a lot of charisma or not, or whether you have a lot of money or, or social standing or native talent or not. 
God's pattern is actually to use ordinary people. Yet at the same time, that's not to say that God uses anyone, regardless of any qualifications or character qualities at all. These verses in Acts show us that God does use a particular kind of person. In the words of our main idea, those who are prayerfully dependent on him. And we can see that in verse 14, where it says that these individuals were devoting themselves to prayer. Now imagine what you might have been inclined to do if Jesus had just given you the mission he had just given them. In the previous passage, he gave them the mission of spreading the gospel throughout the whole world, right? Talk about something that must have made them feel overwhelmed. My goodness, it must have been quite overwhelmed. And so imagine what you would be inclined to do in response to that. I'm sure that you'd probably give some time to prayer. But how would the bulk of your time be spent? If you're anything like most Americans, it would probably be spent in some kind of a strategy meeting, right? Probably even a lengthy series of meetings in which you focused on strategic planning. And I'm not going to lie, that's probably how I'd be tempted to spend a lot of my time as well. My natural implication or inclination rather would be to have my laptop open and a stack of books on my desk and maybe a whiteboard and just be going to town with all that stuff. And yet that's not what these early Christians did, is it? Instead, we're told simply that they prayed. And they didn't just pray token prayers or even have a few token prayer meetings. No, it, it says they devoted themselves to prayer. They were serious about it. You see, there's a very real sense in which prayer is where the battle for the advance of the gospel is won. Of course, there are a lot of other things that we do as Christians that are very necessary in order to reach people with the gospel. I mean, obviously, in order to see people reach with the gospel, we have to actually share the gospel with them and, and be faithful witnesses. And yet after studying this material in Acts and also just reflecting on my own personal experience, I'm convinced that the real battle is won in prayer. The rest of our outreach and witnessing efforts basically just amount to occupying the territory that's already been won on our knees. It's kind of like in the Civil War where uh, the Union troops decisively defeated the Confederate troops at the Battle of Appomattox Courthouse in 1865. Right? That battle brought a close to the Civil War, after which the Union troops then moved to formally occupy Confederate territory. And so the battle was won officially at Appomattox. Well, everything that happened after that just was a result and an outworking of that victory. And I believe there's a very real sense in which that's the way it is with prayer 
as well. You and I are in a very real battle for people's souls. And yet that battle is won, brothers and sisters, in places you might not expect at first. It's one in the armchair of an elderly widow who might not even be able to make it to church physically many Sundays and, and may not be able to even make it many other places, but she faithfully prays for the church's outreach efforts day after day after day. That battle is won maybe in the humble prayer meeting of a church where possibly only a handful of people might be in attendance. But those people are praying kingdom prayers. They're praying that we would take ground for the enemy. That battle is won in the quiet time of perhaps a new Christian who might not even know very much about having a quiet time, but nevertheless tries to spend at least just five minutes each day praying for the names of people who aren't yet Christians. That's where the battle The rest of what we do is just occupying the territory. So these early Christians in Acts 1 are devoting themselves to prayer. And then out of this prayerfulness, God places something on Peter's heart. Beginning in verse 15, the passage describes how Peter stands up among the early Christians, who numbered about 120 people in all, and explains to them that somebody needs to be appointed to take the place of of Judas Iscariot as the 12th apostle. Now, in case you're not familiar, Judas was one of Jesus' 12 followers, but betrayed Jesus and subsequently committed suicide. And so now, Peter says, the church needs to appoint his replacement. And let's just take note of the fact that that's the, this is the first big decision that the early Christians have had to make. And it really is a big one. Like, there aren't many decisions more important than who to appoint to positions of leadership. And this particular decision is occurring at such a critical time in the history of the church that it's guaranteed to echo throughout the corridors of subsequent church history. And I believe there's a lot we can learn from these verses about decision-making. You know, I've encountered a lot of Christians who, have, who, who find it rather difficult to make significant life decisions and who have asked me how to best discern God's will in various situations. Uh, maybe they're wondering about whether it's God's will for them to marry a particular person or not, or to accept a particular job or not, or to move to a particular area or not. Or... Maybe it's not even something quite on that level of importance that they're wondering about, but th something that's still important nonetheless. So how can you discern the will of God? Like, let's say you want to make an impact, like we were talking about earlier. You, you want to, to steward your life and spend yourself for the glory of God during the limited number of years you have on this earth. So, so how then can you make decisions in your life that facilitate that? How can you discern God's will? Well, I believe it's a combination of four primary elements that we see in this passage. 
We might call them ingredients. Four ingredients for discerning the will of God. The first is spiritual alignment. Notice in this passage how this decision came about. As we've already noted in verse 14, they were devoting themselves to prayer. And we're not told exactly what they were praying about, but they seem to simply be devoting themselves to prayer in general. And I believe that had the effect of aligning their hearts with God's. And it's almost impossible to overstate how critical that is for making God-glorifying decisions. And one of the prayers that I found myself praying these past few months is, God, align my heart with yours. Because I want to be passionate about what he's passionate about. I want to be sensitive to what he's sensitive to. I want his perspectives to become my perspectives. So I pray, align my heart with yours. And so that's the first thing that we want to be mindful of. If you're going to make decisions that glorify God, the first thing you need is alignment with God in your heart. And that happens through prayer, as we see here in verse 14, as well, of course, as uh, immersing yourself in Scripture. And as we like to say, getting into the Word until the Word gets into you. And that leads us to the second ingredient for discerning God's will that we see here, which is scriptural guidance. In verses 17 through 20, Peter refers to the scriptures as the lens through which he's viewing the betrayal of Judas and as his reason for suggesting that Judas needs to be replaced. And sometimes the situations we face are like that, where scripture gives us specific guidance for how to act in that situation. And so if you're wondering whether to cheat on your taxes or not, or whether to be faithful to your spouse or not, or whether to forgive somebody or not, you really don't have to wonder about that because God has already told us in, in very specific ways how to act in all those situations. Now, of course, the Bible doesn't give us specific guidance about every situation that we face, but even in those situations where it doesn't give specific instructions, it still offers us general principles that are relevant to that situation. And so the second ingredient for discerning God's will is just taking into account whatever the Bible says about your situation, whether by specific instruction or simply by general principle. Then the third ingredient is what I'll call sanctified reasoning. And by that, I simply mean asking yourself as a, a regenerate Christian who loves Jesus, just asking yourself, what makes the most sense here? We see Peter doing something akin to this in verses 21 through 22, where he tells the rest of the group that the man whom they choose to replace Judas needs to be, quote, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he is, was taken up from us. 
one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. In other words, he can't be a newcomer. If he's going to bear witness about Jesus in an effective and persuasive manner, it just makes sense. He'd be one of the people who had been with Jesus for pretty much the entirety of his ministry. And that's what I mean by sanctified reasoning. Figuring out what makes the most sense. So think about your family. Think about your giftedness. Think about finances. Think about the, the level of risk you're willing to tolerate. Think about all the practical things you need to consider in order to make a prudent decision. It's probably not even a bad idea to write out a list of pros and cons and use that to evaluate your options. So it's, it's not somehow unspiritual to consider practical realities. And then finally, we see the fourth ingredient for discerning God's will, and that is specific prayer. In contrast to the more general prayer that the Christians were devoting themselves to back in verse 14, we find them praying a much more specific prayer about this particular decision in verses 24 and 25. After selecting the two men who seem to be good choices to replace Judas, they pray for God's guidance and, and for him to make his will known. They say, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. A very specific prayer. Now, after that, as we can see in this text, they do employ a rather interesting method for discerning God's will that is frequently called casting lots. Today we might compare it to flipping a coin. And I realize that might sound kind of odd at first, right? Like, hmm, how are we going to make this super important decision about that, that's going to, you know, determine the trajectory of the entirety of church history after this? Oh, I know, let's, let's flip a coin, right? But you have to understand some of the background to this, that th there was actually quite a bit of background to casting lots in the Old Testament. It was um, actually regarded rather highly as a method based upon God's sovereignty through which God would make his will known. So, for example, we see it commanded in uh, the operation of the sacrificial system as well as the initial distribution of land among the Israelites. However, once the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2, we don't find any further mention of this practice among Christians. And so that's why it's probably not a good idea for us to use it today. So like when, whenever it comes for you guys to maybe appoint or ordain, or ordain another elder, I don't recommend that you just flip a coin to determine who the next elder should be. It's because it seems that now that we have the Holy Spirit, then uh, God desires that we seek to discern his will, uh, th not through casting lots or other similar practices, but rather through the other four elements for discerning his will that we see in this passage. The, the elements of spiritual alignment, scriptural guidance, sanctified reasoning, and specific prayer. So, 
just to give you one example, I mentioned earlier and, and extensively in the Bible study hour before this how Becky and I went up to Pittsburgh to start a church there. And of course, we recognized prior to going that that was a big decision that we were making. And so we wanted to make sure, first of all, that we were in alignment with God in making that decision. We wanted to make sure we had spiritual alignment. And I, I do believe we were in alignment with God. We were both seeking God each day through prayer and Bible study. Uh, we were also seeking to surrender to God's will, whatever that might be. Uh, we were seeking to cultivate within our hearts a passion for the things God's passionate about. You know, the advance of his gospel, the glory of his name. So I do believe we had spiritual alignment. And not only were we seeking spiritual alignment, we were also considering biblical principles. And honestly, this one was kind of easy because Jesus told us to go and make disciples. And last I checked, there were a lot of people in Pittsburgh who were in need of that. So therefore, we were following that principle. And of course, there were other principles we considered as well, such as the qualifications for an elder and a biblical church planting methodology and, and things like that. But, you know, those things were all fairly straightforward as well. And then third, we employed sanctified reasoning. We considered our areas of giftedness and our natural temperaments and our life experiences and our financial situation and also just the desires of our hearts. All of those things were factors in our decision. And then finally, really throughout the whole process, we prayed. We prayed a lot. And then, after that, we just did it. We pulled the trigger. We didn't wait for some special sign that God wanted us to go. You know, we didn't sit down and, and see if we could detect a shiver in our liver, right? We didn't open our Bible to some random passage and close our eyes and randomly put our finger down and then see what verse it had landed on. No, God had already told us in his word to seek the advance of the gospel. And had already given us a desire to move to Pittsburgh and, and hadn't shown us any way in which that decision was unscriptural or unwise. And so, get this, we just did what we wanted. It's really quite a liberating approach to discerning God's will when you think about it. And that's my advice for you as well. Make sure you have these four ingredients for decision-making and discerning God's will squared away. And then, just do what you want. As a person who loves Jesus and is in submission to church elders and wants to see God's name glorified. So in light of this passage, let me just ask you, what might God be calling you to do? It could be something huge, like moving somewhere, or something relatively simple. Maybe God's calling you to have a gospel conversation with a particular person that you know. Or maybe he's simply calling you to pursue a, a deeper relationship with someone who's not yet a Christian for the sake of the gospel. Or, or maybe he's calling you to engage in some 
particular kind of ministry, either within this church or outside the walls of this church. What is God calling you to do as a missionary to Abraham? And again, let me encourage you here with what I believe is the main idea of this text, that God changes the world through ordinary people who are prayerfully dependent on him. He did it through the people listed in this passage, and he can do it through you as well. And remember, as verse verse 15 stated, that there were how many people in all? 120 people, right? And yet the only ones of those 120 who are mentioned by name are the 11 remaining apostles and Mary and Matthias and the other candidate, Barsabbas. The rest are nameless Christians. And that's how the vast majority of Christians are in church history. Nameless Christians who die in relative obscurity. They not only start out as ordinary, but they continue to be regarded as ordinary for the rest of their life and even after their life. And yet for many of them, God still uses them in remarkable ways. In fact, I think we could say that the vast majority of the advance of the gospel throughout these past 2,000 years has been accomplished through ordinary Christians who are faithful to the calling God gives them. I mean, think about that. Like, sure, you have a handful of famous Christians, like the Apostle Paul and St. Patrick and William Carey and Charles Spurgeon and Billy Graham, right? Men men who have the the kind of um, fruitfulness and just an unusually... Uh, unusual anointing from the Lord and are written up in the history books. But the vast majority of people who come to faith in Jesus do so not through the ministries of those handful of famous guys, but through ordinary Christians who are faithful to use whatever opportunities they have to, to share the gospel and to make a gospel impact on the people around them. And who are then content to die in obscurity. And who knows? God may end up using you in ways you never expected. For example, back in the 19th century, there was a man named Edward Kimball. If you've never heard of him, that's not surprising because hardly anyone has. Edward was just a regular guy who happened to teach a Sunday school class in his local church. And he must have had a lot of patience because he taught the the middle school boys class at his church. And uh, sometimes that can be a very interesting thing to do. I remember teaching the middle school boys for for a while in a church I used to be a part of. And some days were were pretty pretty interesting days, I'll say. And uh, that's what Edward Kimball did in his church. And one boy in particular seemed to others to be a lost cause. And so Edward was, uh, he made an intentional effort to reach out to that boy individually, even outside of class, and, and talk to him about the gospel. 
one day he actually went to the place where that boy worked at the local shoe store and talked to him about Jesus and through that interaction God used the, the, the gospel message to to draw that boy to saving faith and do you know what that boy's name was his name was D.L. Moody one of the most famous evangelists in the, the history of the church certainly the most famous of the 19th century God used D.L. Moody to lead tens of thousands of people to faith in Jesus in fact some uh, estimate that as many as a million people may have come to faith through Moody's ministry and yet the story gets even better because God used D.L. Moody to bring a man named Wilbur Chapman to salvation, who was then used to bring a man named Billy Sunday to salvation, another famous evangelist, who was then used to bring a man named Mordecai Ham to salvation, who was then used to bring none other than Billy Graham to faith in Jesus. And all of this because one man Edward Kimball was faithful to engage the boys in his Sunday school class with the gospel. Listen to me. You can have an enormous impact on the people around you and on, the, on this world simply by leading people to faith in Jesus who then hopefully lead others to faith in Jesus who then lead still others to faith in Jesus. I mean, think about how your impact could multiply. As the old saying goes, think about how many apple trees are contained in a single apple seed. So once again, we come back to this idea that God changes the world through ordinary people who are prayerfully dependent on him. And yet one thing that's absolutely critical for us to keep in mind with all of this is that in order for you to change the world in an eternally significant way, you first have to be changed by God. See, there's a difference between what we're talking about this morning and the kind of inspirational message you might hear at a high school graduation, right? This isn't ju just some generic call to make a difference in the world. No, this is a specific call to make an impact in a very specific way and with a very specific message, the message of the gospel. Notice in verse 22 that Peter refers to this as a call to be a witness to Christ's, to, to his resurrection, meaning the, the resurrection of Jesus. You see, the story begins with our rebellion against God and the judgment that our rebellion deserves. And yet, it doesn't end there, praise God. Because this God of judgment and holiness is also a God of love and mercy. And he sent his own son, Jesus, on a rescue mission to save us. Jesus came to this earth as a human being, fully God and fully man. Lived a life of sinless perfection. And then died on the cross to take the punishment for your sins and my sins. The full fury of the wrath of God that should have come down on you and me came down on Jesus instead. Then, of course, three days later, he resurrected from the dead. 
so that we too, well, as we sung, could have life beyond the grave. Like he was the foretaste of eternal life. And that, of course, that is the message of the gospel. And the first step to God working through you for the advance of that gospel message is to experience his work in you as he changes your heart by the power of the gospel. So have you yet experienced that supernatural change of heart? Have you ever put your faith in Jesus, renouncing your sinful way of living, renouncing everything you might be trusting in, apart from Christ, to get you into heaven, and instead putting your trust in Christ and Him alone as your only hope of ever being right with God. He's the one needed so desperately, not just by this world collectively, but by you and I individually. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the call that you have placed on each of our lives, Lord. Thank you, first of all, for those of us who are Christians, for the call to salvation, the most precious of all. And yet, thank you also for the call to be laborers in the harvest field, missionaries to this area, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would give us an amb a holy ambition for our lives. Lord, not just to be involved nominally in a church, enjoy the American dream and have a comfortable life, Lord, but a, a call to spend our lives, to be spent for the sake of the gospel, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would live lives worthy of that calling we've received and that you would use us to make an eternal impact on the people around us, Lord. One, that like the early Christians, will truly echo throughout the quarters of history, even throughout all eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen indeed. May we be faithful to pray and faithful to proclaim the glorious gospel of Christ. Let's stand together and we'll close our worship time this morning singing, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Let's sing together.
So indeed, glory be to God. Brother, we appreciate you coming and sharing and proclaiming and sharing in the fellowship. We're excited to hear about the work that the Lord is continuing to do in Pittsburgh. So we thank you and we pray that the Lord will continue to bless you and the saints there as well. Um, as Brother Josh talked about, one important thing in the life of the church is prayer. And so I want to encourage and invite you to come back tonight at 5.30 as we seek to... Um, pray um, as a church body. Uh, we'll be praying for the work in Pittsburgh. We'll be looking at Psalm chapter 50, be praying for lost friends, family members, and, and other various things. So come back at 530 for that. Um, Fundamentals of the Faith this afternoon at 4 o'clock, Lesson 6 in Fundamentals of the Faith. We'll be on Lesson 6 in our study Wednesday night as well, Union with Christ. So we'll hope to see you there at 645 on Wednesday as well. Um, is there anything else, anything I've forgotten to mention this morning? All right. Well, you are dismissed. Hope you have a good afternoon. <laughs>